Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett coming to you from Hickory Ridge Community Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. This is part two of a message that we're doing. I've entitled it, Sin, You're Not the Boss of Me. And we're looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 8 to 23. Sin, you're not the boss of me. Well, I've got some really good news for you today. I want you to know that sin does not have to be your boss. Now, maybe you're listening to the broadcast today, and maybe you're like me, you have adult children, or maybe you even have uh, grandchildren, and maybe adult grandchildren. I want you to know it's never too late for them spiritually, okay? Now, I know that a lot of things have changed, and uh, I'm doing a small group study with my small group, and it's called Never Too Late. And this is a study of what is happening with the generation that's coming up behind us, our children, our grandchildren, when it comes to the matter of faith. And so we look at the current state of evangelism and discipleship, and I want you to know it can be kind of discouraging uh, as you look at these numbers. And I'm going to just share a few of these things with you, but we're actually studying a book by Rob Renau, and it's called Never Too Late. And the subtitle is Encouraging Faith in Your Children. And so I wanted to share a few of the things that he has mentioned in this book. And as we look at why is it that our children are not receiving the faith in very large numbers, right? So the question is asked, well, how in the world could this have happened? Well, let's look at the current state of evangelism and discipleship. And George Barna has given us some really good research on this. And he says that, 75% of children who grow up in a Christian church leave the church and or the faith when they get to college. Uh, So 75%, three out of four children who grew up in Christian homes, Christian churches, ended up leaving the church and their faith when they went to college. Tom Rayner also did some research, and he found some information about the percentage of Christians who claim to be Christians and can actually articulate the basic message of the gospel. In other words, he did a study based upon age, uh, those born before 1946, for example. He said that those born before 1946, 65% of that age group are able to clearly delineate and articulate the basic message of the gospel. They understand basically that they were lost, they were sinners, that God so loved us that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, that Jesus was buried, that he rose again three days later, and that because of his resurrection, because of his death, we could put our faith and trust in him. And if we do that, we will have everlasting life. So 64% of the people who are born before 1946 can articulate that, and this is in America, believe that. And then you go to the people that are born between the years of 1946 and 1964, and we discover that the number drops from 65% to 35%. You can see a drastic decrease, okay? And then those born between 1965 and 1976, that's my age group, right? Born in that just that little 10-year window, 65 to 76, only 15% of people born in that time frame can articulate the basic message of the gospel. And then we go to those who were born between 1976 and 1994. Uh, These are our children, and in some cases, maybe our grandchildren. Only 4% of that group can articulate the basic message of the gospel. So we're asking, why in the world has this happened? How could this happen? Well, he says there's basically two core causes of this 
generational decline, spiritual decline. Cause number one is the core changes to the Christian family. And we're going to go back a little bit to kind of figure out what has happened. And we discovered that prior to the 1900s, there was a clear understanding that parents and grandparents were responsible for the evangelism and the discipleship of their children. That was prior to the 1900s. And then things began to change uh, in the 20th century. We saw a radical decline in the centerpiece of the Christian household, and that is worship. We saw that family worship was no longer taking place. As a matter of fact, I did a survey in my small group, and uh, there was about 25 of us that were gathered And I asked the group of 25, now, how many of you, when you were growing up, and pretty much everybody in this group was born uh, prior to, I would say, prior to 1965 or so, okay? So they're they're all in their 50s, 60s, and above, okay? And so I asked this age group of about 25 people, how many of you, when you were growing up, had a family worship time? Only three out of that 25. And so when we see that, we see that uh, this drastic transition has taken place. And we no longer instill Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses would command the father to instill the principles upon their children. And so we see this indictment that has taken place. And this is something that is kind of a new phenomenon for our country. And I want to go back, and I I hate to take you to a long history lesson, But when you go back to the founding of our nation, when the Pilgrims first came over in the 1600s, okay, uh, there was a a different view of family worship. And then you get into the 1700s, and there was a different view of family worship. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a director for family worship in Scotland. And uh, many of our ancestors came from Scotland and England and came over here in the early 1600s in the founding of our nation. And uh, this is what this director of family worship said. The assembly requires and appoints ministers to make diligent search and inquiry whether to be among them a family or families which neglect the duty of family worship. If such a family is found, the head of the family is to be admonished privately to amend his fault. And in case of his continuing therein, in other words, we confront him about it privately, and if he continues not to have family worship, he is to be gravely and sadly reproved by the session, uh, that's by the leaders of the church, after which reproof, if he is still found to neglect family worship, let him be, for his obstinacy in such an offense, suspended and debarred from the Lord's Supper until he amends his ways. Now, that's pretty rough, isn't it? Can you imagine this Sunday, if you gathered in your church to have communion, and the pastor says, now listen, uh, all you dads who have not led your family this week in family worship and devotions, you cannot partake. Now, I wonder how many of our dads would have to allow the elements to pass them by. Well, Jonathan Edwards, in his farewell sermon, said this, We have had great disputes about how the church ought to be regulated. And this is in the early 1700s, right? Uh, He says, we've had these great disputes about how the church ought to be regulated, how it ought to be governed. And indeed, the subject of these disputes was of great importance. But the due regulation of your families is of no less, and in some respects, of much greater importance. What is he saying? Edwards is saying, listen, it's good that we spend a lot of time 
handling disputes within the church and how the church ought to be governed. He says, but there's something even of greater importance, and that is how we regulate our homes. He goes on, every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church, consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by his rules. And family education and order are some of the chief means of grace. If these fail, all other means are likely to prove ineffective. If these are duly maintained, all the means of grace will be likely to prosper and to be successful. Wow, powerful words by Jonathan Edwards. Well, let me read you one more as we get up into the 1800s, okay? So we've started in the 1600s. Look at Jonathan Edwards' 1700s. Let's look at what Charles Spurgeon had to say about the kind of revival that we need, okay? He said this, We deeply want a revival of domestic religion. The Christian family was a bulwark of godliness in the days of the Puritans. But in these evil times, hundreds of families of so-called Christians have no family worship, no restraint upon their growing sons, and no wholesome instruction or discipline. How can we hope to see the kingdom of our Lord advance when his own disciples do not teach his gospel to their own children? Oh, Christian men and women, be thorough in what you do and and know and teach. Let your families be trained in the fear of God and be yourselves holiness unto the Lord. So shall you stand like a rock amid the surging waves of error and ungodliness with rage all around us. Well, as we look at this, what in the world should we be driving home to our families so that they will no longer have sin being their boss? Well, there's five things that was really pushed during the Great Reformation that I think need to be reintroduced. And here they are. Uh, And I'm going to give this kind of as a side note, and then we're going to get back to the subject of why sin would not be your boss, okay? These are five things that every believer in every Christian home ought to understand and believe. Number one, sola fidea, which is solely saved by faith. And as we think about that, that is the driving pillar of our faith, that we believe we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not faith plus my good works. It's not faith plus my good behavior. It's not faith plus my obedience. It's faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Secondly, sola gratia, which we are solely giving glory or grace is available, sola grace, it's because of the grace of God. All of our salvation, every aspect of it is based upon the grace of God. I've done nothing to earn his favor. It is unmerited favor. God's grace given to me. I'm saved by faith alone, through grace alone, which leads to number three, sola Christos, through Christ alone. It's not Christ plus Mary. It's not Christ plus my good behavior. It's not Christ plus my ability to give. It's not Christ plus me giving indulgences or giving gifts to the church. It is through Christ alone because of his grace alone, and is through faith alone in him. And then we have the fourth element that was really popular during the times of the Reformation that I fear that we have forgotten, and that is that all glory goes to God. Deo gloria, meaning all glory to God. 
Now, this is so important because we're living in a day and age where our faith has been turned to bring glory to ourselves. And we hear things like, uh, discover the champion within you, right? Uh, Be the best possible you. Well, that's stealing glory from God. The best possible me is not found in me. The glory goes to God. To him be glory and praise forever and ever, right? Uh, Everything is to bring glory and praise to him. And if I try to steal that glory from him, I am far from him. I am the Lord your God. I will not share my glory with any, Moses wrote to his followers. And and that continues on throughout human history that all glory goes to him. And then number five, another very important tenet of our faith. We're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, to God alone, and then sola scriptura. Sola scriptura means that the Bible, God's word, from Genesis to Revelation, is our final authority. That is where we find the solution to the ills of our lives, the solution to the problems within our world today. Paul said to young Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, when we look at these essential beliefs, as followers of Christ. When we really believe these things, we can have a different view of our lives. So let's look at this subject of who's the boss. And we're in Romans chapter six, and we learned yesterday that I now have a new home because of what Christ has done in me. Well, we read verse number eight that says, verses eight through 10, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall live also with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So as a follower of Christ, that little phrase, dead in Christ, appears seven times in the New Testament. I died with Christ. In other words, I died to the systems of this world when I put my complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I received the grace of God. I no longer have sin being my home, my dominion, I now have a new home, and it's a heavenly home. I now have a new place that I reside. I don't go to that old place anymore. I don't live for that old person of self anymore. And because of that, I no longer am fearful of death. We learn secondly, that sin is not the boss of me because not only do I have a new home, I also have a new life. Paul says on in verse number 11, Romans chapter 6, likewise, you also... Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but you're under grace. And I love that little phrase that he uses, that your members are no longer instruments of sin or unrighteousness, but now they are members of righteousness, okay? I was talking about these members doing things for a new life, no longer living for sin. Now I live for righteousness. I no longer let sin reign in my mortal body. I no longer obey those lusts, because now I have a new home and I have a new life. 
Thirdly, sin is not the boss of me because I also have a new owner. Romans chapter 6, 15 through 18. Paul asks a question, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves, you obey? You are that one slave to whom you obey, whether that be sin leading to death or whether that be obedience leading to righteousness. But then Paul says, but thank be to God. Now, thank you, Lord, that we were once slaves of sin, yet we obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which we were delivered. And then Paul says, we've been set free from sin. We have become slaves of righteousness. I used to be a slave of sin. I was born of my father, the devil. He enslaved me. Now, I willingly went along with that enslavement. But really what it was all about was living for me. You know, I discovered something about our enemy, Satan, that devil that prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't necessarily care if we worship him. Now, let that sink in for just a moment. He doesn't really care if we worship him just as long as we don't worship Christ. You see, that's the arch enemy of the devil. It is Christ. He hates the Lord Jesus Christ. He hates when people worship him. He hates when people love him and obey him. He hates when people receive his gift of salvation. He hates Christ. He'll let you worship yourself. He doesn't really care if you worship yourself just as long as you don't worship Christ. You see, when I can say that sin is no longer the boss of me, it's because I do have a new owner. I am not a slave to Satan any longer, and I don't live for me any longer. Peter put it this way, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, how can he be entangled in it any longer and overcome? Now, this is an interesting passage because I want to get what Peter says about, I don't live for me anymore, and the only way I cannot live for me anymore is if I have a change within my character because by nature, I live for myself. You know, when I was in Sunday school many years ago, when I was just a kid, uh, the teacher asked us, anybody know a Bible verse? Well, I knew 2 Peter 2, 21 and 22, and I quoted the first part of it, where it says, a dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. That was my verse that I quoted in Sunday school. I had no idea what it meant. Uh, I just thought it was a cool verse, and I don't, didn't understand at that time why it was in there. But as I've gotten older, I've discovered why that verse is in there. Peter is telling us, and he's reminding us, that a dog will go back to its vomit because that's the nature or that's the character of a dog to do that. It doesn't matter how well you try to change him. He's always going to do that. And he goes, a pig, you can wash it up and clean it up. But if a pig gets near a mud hole, it's going to wallow back in that mud, no matter how much time you spend cleaning him up, because that's the nature of a pig. Now, Peter is telling us here that we no longer live for ourselves. We have been changed. But if we decide that we're no longer going to live uh, for Christ and we go back to wanting to live for ourselves, it would be better off for us not even to hear the way of righteousness, because if we return to that, it means that we have never been changed and we are enslaved. And we haven't had a change of our character. We are still living for ourselves. We are still owners of ourselves, owners by Satan. Well, there's another reason why sin doesn't have to be the boss of me. 
Number four, I have new benefits. Paul continues on by saying this in Romans 6, 19 to 23. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your bodies as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. In other words, you did sin and you thought, well, I'm going to keep on sinning. Maybe that will get me out of this sin. But the more you sinned, the more you wanted to sin and the more lawless you became. So Paul says, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. I guess we could even say that we become more holy. It becomes habit forming. So the more holy we become, the holier we can become and the holier we will become. And I know there's a lot of wording on this and how Paul is putting it, but I think he's putting it very succinctly by giving us a whole lot of illustrations of what this looks like. And so he says, well, we were slaves of sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. All right. When you were enslaved to sin, you didn't have to worry about being a righteous person. You were freed up from being righteous because you were very unrighteous. And he says, what fruit did you have in them in the things that you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Living that slavery to sin ends in death, but now you have been set free from sin. So what happens if I've been set free from sin? I become a slave of God, and now I bear something else. I bear holiness and everlasting life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's two benefits that we see here. When we surrender ourselves over to Christ, we become holy. We will go to heaven one day. That is the fruit of our holiness, right? And we become more holy, and then we have everlasting life. So now I can say, I live for eternity. Isn't that great? With eternity in mind. Paul said to Titus in Titus chapter 3, when the kindness and the love of our God appeared to us, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Oh, I want you to know, my friend, God has moved heaven and earth to have this hope of eternal life given to us. And that is a message that every one of us needs to hear and everyone needs to receive because you are promised new benefits, a home in heaven. You know, to drive home this point of how much God wanted us to be moved to have a relationship with him. Way back in 1876, there was a small Methodist church near the ocean in Swan Quarter, North Carolina. And uh, that's down there by Newborn, right off the coast of North Carolina. Well, this little Methodist church was struck by a hurricane, and it was damaged. So the members got together, and they restored the church. Uh, but once you know, another hurricane came and damaged it again, and did a lot of damage within the town with the flooding and all that. And, and so the, the parishioners restored their place of worship once more, but they said, you know, enough is enough. <laughs> so they searched for a safer location. They looked for a piece of property, and they found some land. And so they offered the owner of that property a very generous amount of money for it, but he refused. Then came another hurricane. And again, there was massive flooding. And in fact, it was so massive that it lifted the church building right off its foundations. 
And in spite of them trying to tie the church down to, to keep it from floating away, uh, the current was just too strong, and, and the church was lifted from its moorings, and it was sent meandering downstream. The residents of the town tied the ropes, but uh, they couldn't stop it from floating away. The current was just too strong. When the waters receded, the building came to rest on that exact piece of ground which the parishioners had previously tried to buy. So they went to the owner and once again made an offer. He refused their money again. But this is what he said. You can't buy this piece of property, but I'll give it to you, he said. And the reason I want to give it to you is because the Lord definitely wants this church on this lot. So to this day, the sign on the front of that church says this, the house that God moved. Maybe that could be said of you. The house that God moved. The life that God changed. The life that God brought about a new creation in. Would you receive this free gift of salvation? Call upon the name of the Lord today and you will be saved. Your life will be changed. You'll have a whole new owner. You'll have a whole new life. You no longer live for yourself. You live for eternity and you'll be born again. Well, if I can help you, if you have any questions about how to have a relationship with Christ, shoot me a text at 252-267-2365. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. 252-267-2365. We'll talk with you soon. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ there is always hope for your heart.